This is what the Lord said to me. Go and buy a linen belt and put it around your waist, but do not let it touch water. So I bought a belt, as the Lord directed, and put it around my waist. Then the, the word of the Lord came to me a second time. Take the belt you bought and are wearing around your waist and go to Parath in, and hide it there in a crevice in the rocks. So I went to Parath and as the Lord told me. Many days later, the Lord said to me, go now to Parath and take the belt I told you to hide there. So I went to Parath and dug up the belt and took it from the place where I had hidden it. But now it was ruined and completely useless. Then the Lord, word of the Lord came to me. This is what the Lord said. In the same way, I will ruin the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. These wicked people who refuse to listen to my words, who follow the stubbornness of their hearts and go after other gods to serve and worship them, they will be like this belt, completely useless. But as a belt is a bound around the waist, so I bound all the people of Israel and all the people of Judah to me, declares the Lord, to be my people for my renown and praise and honour, but they have not listened. Say to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, every wineskin should be filled with wine. And if they say to you, don't we know that every wineskin should be filled with wine? Then tell them, this is what the Lord says, I'm going to fill with drunkenness all who live in this land, including the kings who sit on David's throne, the priests, the prophets, and all those living in Jerusalem. I will smash them one against the other, parents and children alike, declares the Lord. I will allow no pity or mercy or compassion to keep me from destroying them. Hear and pay attention. Do not be arrogant, for the Lord has spoken. Give glory to the Lord your God before he brings the darkness before your feet stumble on the darkening hills. You hope for light, but he will turn it to utter darkness and change it to deep gloom. If you do not listen, I will weep in secret. Because of your pride, my eyes will weep bitterly, overflowing with tears because the Lord's flock will be taken captive. Say to the king and to the queen mother, come down from your throne, for your glorious crown will fall from your head. The cities in the Negev will be shut up and there will be no one to open them. All Judah will be carried into exile, carried completely away. Look up and see those who are coming from the north. Where is the flock that was entrusted to you, the sheep of which you boasted? What will you say when the Lord sets over you those you cultivate as your special allies? Will not pain with you like that of a woman in labour? And if you ask yourself, why has this happened to me? It's because of your many sins that your skirts have been torn off and your body mistreated. Can an Ethiopian change his skin or a little spot? Neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. I will scatter you like chaff driven by the desert wind. This is your lot, the portion I have decreed for you, declares the Lord. 
because you have forgotten me and trusted in false gods. I will pull up your skirts over your face that your shame may be seen, your adulteries and lustful names, your shameless prostitution. I've seen your detestable acts on the hills and in the fields. Woe to you, Jerusalem. How long will you be unclean? Hey everyone, I hope you've had a great weekend. Boy, there's been a lot of talk this afternoon about lockdown hobbies, hasn't there? I, uh, during lockdown, the pools have been shut, and so I took the big step of dusting off the old bicycle. I've been doing a bit of riding. Uh, I, I went for a ride with Ryan Kennedy from PM, and I would love to tell you that I rode him into the ground. I, I ground him to dust. Uh, actually, I had to get up. I had to get off my bike and push it up a hill. Uh, and Ryan just sort of rode next to me. His only problem was, could he ride slow enough? That was what I would love to know is if anyone has actually been learning a language during lockdown. Like most Aussies, I only know one language. I know a dialect, Bogan, and my children are fluent in Bogan in Newcastle. And I learned Greek and Hebrew at college. But the problem is, unless I ever happen to bump into a 2,000-year-old Greek person, it's not really that useful for everyday life. And so I've decided, if I ever get around to learning another language, it's going to be German. I just love German for two big reasons. One, all of the words just sound so cool. All of the Himmels and Flugels and Labens and Zungenbrechers. No other language is such a jawbreaker as German is. But also, and in fact even more so, German just has the most incredibly descriptive and frankly bizarre words for situations we just can't describe in English. So the word Kummerspeck. English has no word as cool as Kummerspeck. In fact, no word to describe what Kummerspeck describes. Do you know what it is? Literally, it's grief bacon. It's the weight that you put on through overeating. So when I'm down and I eat to make myself feel better, like during COVID, I'm putting on my Kummerspeck. Isn't that just a fantastic word? I love that they even narrow it down to the kind of meat that we eat when we're down. Or another word, Reichhezachok. I think that's how you pronounce it. How great does that sound? Reichhezachok. What does it mean? Well, again, literally, it means three cheeses high. It's a short person. A short person is only as tall as three pieces of cheese placed on top of each other. I love that German has these kinds of words. Another one that's actually made it into our language is schadenfreude. You've probably heard of schadenfreude. Literally, it's harm joy. It's that secret pleasure that we get from seeing someone come to some kind of misfortune, especially a misfortune that they actually deserve, a punishment they deserve. So this picture is schadenfreude. It's laughing at someone else's pain, especially when it's a pain that they deserve. I remember a friend of mine once describing schadenfreude perfectly. He was driving this really beat up old dump truck. You know those trucks that just have a top speed, basically of walking speed. And my friend was trying to get out onto that, you know, that super busy road between Newcastle and Maitland. And because it was so busy, 
It took him ages. He just couldn't find a gap in the traffic to get out. And sitting right behind him was this young guy in a convertible sports car. And this guy was getting so impatient. He was getting so angry and cross. And finally, he just pulled out, sped around past him with this blast on his horn and a blast of expletives. And he went off down the road in a cloud of dust. Well, finally, my friend got out. And about a kilometer down the road, he chugged past this young guy as he was getting a speeding ticket from the police. And just as my mate pulled level, he gave the horn a little honk honk. <laughs> and that honk honk, that is schadenfreude. And we do actually get a kind of secret pleasure, don't we, from seeing someone get their just desserts. We get this secret pleasure when the, the cheater gets caught out or when the child trips over the toy that they left in the hallway and you told them to put away. Or when God's people gets the judgment that they deserve. Oh, that one's, that one's a little bit awkward, isn't it? Because how should we feel when God's people get the judgment that they rightly deserve? The world would kind of assume that we would feel schadenfreude, wouldn't they? I mean, when you think about it, they would assume that we love the idea of God judging the sinners because basically most people think Christians are kind of judgmental because we think that we're better than everyone else. We're perfect. That's why we're going to heaven because we're good enough. And so we love the idea of other people getting what they deserve. But do we? Should we? Does God? Well, that's Jeremiah chapters 13 to 17. Because one of the big themes of this section of Jeremiah is Jeremiah's personal feelings about Judah getting judged. Because like a lot of Jeremiah, there is an awful lot of judgment in this section. In fact, really, that's one of the toughest things about studying the book of Jeremiah, isn't it? The judgment is just so unremitting. It's just so relentless, primarily because Judah's sin is also just so relentless. But in chapters 13 to 17, we kind of see Jeremiah's personal feelings about it. We do still get lots of pictures of judgment. I'll take you through some of them. There are a series of images of judgment. We just read some of them in chapter 13. There's the idea of the linen belt. God tells Jeremiah to hide this linen belt in the rocks until it gets ruined. And then he says, in the same way, I will ruin the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. There's an image of judgment. Then there's also the wineskins. Jeremiah tells Judah to fill all their wineskins because God says, I'm going to fill with drunkenness all who live in this land, including the kings who sit on David's throne and the priests and the prophets and all those living in Jerusalem. So there's the, the image of the linen belt. There's the image of wineskins. In chapter 14, there's a drought. Judah mourns. Her cities languish. They wail for the land and a cry goes up for Jerusalem because you see God has sent them drought. In chapter 15, God says, I'll send four kinds of destroyers against them. The sword to kill and dogs to drag away and the birds and the wild animals to devour and destroy. You see, like the rest of Jeremiah, there are lots and lots of images of judgment in our section. But we also get told how Jeremiah personally feels about this judgment. We kind of get an insight into the heart of the prophet. 
And look, at one level, you could accuse Jeremiah of schadenfreude because he does actually pray for God to judge Judah. Look what he prays in chapter 17. They keep saying to me, where is the word of the Lord? Let it now be fulfilled. Let my persecutors be put to shame, but keep me from shame. Let them be terrified, but keep me from terror. Bring on them the day of disaster. Destroy them with double destruction. That sounds a lot like schadenfreude, doesn't it? Jeremiah actually prays for their judgment for a couple of reasons. One, he prays for their judgment because he actually can see just how evil Judah's sin is. And it makes him cry out for justice. He does it quite a lot of times in, uh, in Jeremiah. But he can also see their evil in attacking him. They keep saying to me, where is the word of the Lord? Let it now be fulfilled. Basically, the people of Judah end up hating Jeremiah because he serves God and he makes them feel guilty. And it's funny, you know, both of those things are true of Christians today, aren't they? As we see really evil things happening in our world, we do cry out for God to fix them, don't we? We see things like pedophilia or corruption or genocide. And just our sense of justice, that something should be done about this, means we cry out to God to put it right. When will God come back and fix all this and take us to heaven? See, it's funny, we react negatively to a lot of the judgment in Jeremiah because it is confronting. But sometimes we love judgment, don't we? Sometimes we long for it. And in fact, even people who aren't Christians often feel the same way. People who don't worship God will say, why isn't God fixing this horrible thing? That's his job, isn't it? But, you know, one of the big differences between Christians and people who aren't Christians in this world is Christians will be attacked when we don't join in the wicked things that the world loves. Peter actually talks about this. He says, for you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing and detestable idolatry. They're surprised that you don't join in with them in their reckless, wild living and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. You see, there are some kinds of sins the world doesn't want judgment for because they really love to commit them. Debauchery, lust, drunkenness. And they can't understand why we don't jump in with them. And Peter says they heap abuse on us for it. I mean, what's the matter with you? Do, you? do you think you're better than us? Is that why you don't join in with this sort of... You do think that, don't you? You Christians, you're always so superior. And it's not that we are. We don't think that we're any better than anyone else. But our refusal to join in gets read that way. Just like when Jeremiah refused to join into Judah's sin, they, the people have attacked him. And so we do actually see Jeremiah praying for judgment. But, you know, in this section, that's not Jeremiah's dominant response. That's not actually the major note of these chapters. Now, come and have a look at what I think is a really key passage for this section. Jeremiah chapter 14, verses 17 to 22. Speak this word to them. 
Let my eyes overflow with tears, night and day without ceasing. For the virgin daughter, my people, has suffered a grievous wound, a crushing blow. If I go into the city, I go into the country, I see those slain by the sword. If I go into the city, I see the ravages of famine. Both prophet and priest have gone to a land they know not. Have you rejected Judah completely? Do you despise Zion? Why have you afflicted us so that we cannot be healed? We hoped for peace, but no good has come for a time of healing. But there's only terror. We acknowledge our wickedness, Lord, and the guilt of our ancestors. We have indeed sinned against you. For the sake of your name, do not despise us. Do not dishonor your glorious throne. Remember your covenant with us and do not break it. Do any of the worthless idols of the nations bring rain? Do the skies themselves send down showers? No, it's you, Lord, our God. Therefore, our hope is in you, for you are the one who does all this. You see, that is how Jeremiah responds to God judging Judah. And it's not schadenfreude at all, is it? Now, actually, you can see four big things about how Jeremiah responds to God's judgment. Firstly, he weeps. He says, let my eyes overflow with tears night and day without ceasing. For the virgin daughter, my people, has suffered a grievous wound, a crushing blow. Jeremiah sees the judgment of God and he's heartbroken. So heartbroken that he even questions God's judgment. He says, have you rejected Judah completely? Do you despise Zion? Why have you afflicted us so that we cannot be healed? We hope for peace, but no good has come for a time of healing. But there is only terror. You see, Jeremiah is so struck. He's so moved by Judah being judged that he actually questions God's judgment. But the next thing he does is repent and confess. We acknowledge our wickedness, Lord, and the guilt of our ancestors. We have indeed sinned against you. You see, Jeremiah comes to acknowledge Judah's sin. And in fact, he also acknowledges even his own part in it. Before finally he turns to God with this beautiful prayer of trust for forgiveness. For the sake of your name, do not despise us. Do not dishonor your glorious throne. Remember your covenant with us and do not break it. Now, that little passage, it's almost a summary of Jeremiah's feelings during these chapters. And you can actually see all of those things as, as you read through all of those responses. You see him weeping again and again. You see him questioning God's judgment. You see him repenting and you see him praying. So let's look at each of them in turn. And then we're going to finish with another response that's not in this passage. It's kind of like a bonus. Again and again in Jeremiah 13, his response to God judging Judah is weeping and mourning. In chapter 13, he says to them, if you do not listen, I will weep in secret because of your pride. My eyes will weep bitterly, overflowing with tears because the Lord's flock will be taken captive. You see, Judah doesn't take, uh, Jeremiah doesn't take pleasure in Judah's judgment. It breaks his heart. 
He weeps because this is God's flock. These are God's people and they're about to be taken captive. It's so painful that Jeremiah regrets that he was even born at all. He says, alas, my mother, that you gave me birth. A man with whom the whole land strives and contends. I've neither lent nor borrowed, yet everyone curses me. You see, the godly response to judgment is not schadenfreude. It's not, well, you made your bed so you can live in it. No, judgment may be what people deserve, but we never rejoice in it. We never take pleasure in it. Because our God doesn't. God doesn't want to judge. That's why he calls people to repent. In Ezekiel, God says to Israel, rid yourself of all the offenses you've committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, people of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent and live. See, God's pleading his people with his people there. He doesn't want to judge. I mean, he will. He will judge because it's right, but he takes no pleasure in people's death. He longs to forgive. He longs to forgive just like Jesus, who wept over Jerusalem, the city that was about to kill him. And as Jesus looked down on Jerusalem, he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent you. How often have I longed to gather your children together? as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you weren't willing. Look, your house has left you desolate. You see, our God is not the God of schadenfreude. He's not callous or malicious or uncaring. No, our God is the one who rejoices when a single sinner repents. Our God frets for the lost. And if his people are like him, we will too. See, this is something that actually goes right to our very hearts. It goes right to the kind of people we are deep inside. Do you weep and long for the lost? Does your heart break for them? Those precious people that you're praying for, do you agonize over them? Do you lie awake in bed at night thinking of them? Are you frustrated at their hard-heartedness, their disinterest in the gospel? Do you even weep to think of their eternal peril? Because Jeremiah did. He wept over Judah because he could see firsthand what God's judgment looks like. This week, I have just been praying that God would soften my stony heart, that God would break through my callous, selfish indifference to the eternal destiny of the people that I love. You see, it's not that I hate them. It's not that I don't care about them. It's just that I'm sleepwalking through life. I'm meandering my way to heaven. And I don't want to do that. I don't want to be that kind of person. I don't want to be a cruise ship Christian. No, I want to be a lifeboat Christian. I want to be the person who weeps over the peril of the people around me, who actually feels the horror 
of God's judgment for people and it weighs on my soul. In fact, I want to feel it so much that I even begin to question God's judgment because Jeremiah did. In chapter 14, Jeremiah says, Although our sins testify against us, do something, Lord, for the sake of your name, for we have often rebelled. We have sinned against you. You who are the hope of Israel and Savior in times of distress, why are you like a stranger in the land, like a traveler who stays only a night? Why are you like a man taken by surprise, like a warrior powerless to save? You are among us, Lord, and we bear your name. Do not forsake us. See, Jeremiah is almost angry with God there. He questions God, doesn't he? And look, I don't want, I'd never want to encourage Christians to disrespect God. We do well to remember his majesty. But don't we want to be this kind of Christian who so weep for the lost, who, who so long for their salvation, who feel it so deeply in our hearts that we find ourselves saying to God, God, why aren't there more people becoming Christians? Why so few, Lord? Why don't you show more mercy on our city, Father? Why haven't you saved my parents and my friends? Don't you want to feel a little of that indignation? I do. God, please bruise my heart for the sake of the lost. God, impress on me the horror of eternal hell that I might weep for them and then call on you for them. God, break me out of my indifference. Because Jeremiah was not indifferent. Our God is not indifferent. No father who can sacrifice his only son for the lost could ever be called indifferent, right? Could it be, could it be that the reason God hasn't saved more is not because he's stingy, but because we have simply failed to ask. We've failed to plead. Could it be that God has answered our prayers in proportion with our, our indifference? Jeremiah weeps. He weeps so much he even questions God. But the third thing he does is confess. He confesses Judah's sin, but he also even confesses his own sin. In chapter 15, God says something to Jeremiah that's actually pretty confronting. He says, if you repent, I will restore you that you may serve me. If you utter worthy, not worthless words, you will be my spokesman. Let this people turn to you, but you must not turn to them. I will make you a wall to this people, a fortified wall of bronze. They'll fight against you, but will not overcome you, for I am with you to rescue you and save you, declares the Lord. I will save you from the hands of the wicked and deliver you from the grasp of the cruel. See, God actually calls Jeremiah to repent in this passage. And it's not entirely clear what he's repenting of, although he, in the passage just before this, Jeremiah does question God's judgment. That could be the worthless words 
that God calls him to repent of, questioning God's judgment. But God says to him, if you repent, I will restore you that you may serve me. And so it's interesting, when Jeremiah confesses Judah's sin, he doesn't say they have done this, they are guilty. He says, we have done this, we have sinned. And that is actually one of the things that stops Christians being judgmental, isn't it? Stops Christians feeling schadenfreude. It's not just that we know how awful God's judgment is. No, we know how awful we are as well. I don't deserve to escape hell any more than anyone else does, right? I know that. But one of the dangers of being a Christian for a long time or growing up in a Christian home, one of the dangers is that we can subtly slip into thinking that we are better than the people around us, that we are somehow different to them. I need to keep hearing passages like Titus chapter 3, where Paul says, At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. The fact is, that's me. At one time, I was like that. At one time, too often in my heart, I'm still like that. In fact, too often in my heart, I still want to be like that. So often, the only thing that stops me from sinning more, if I'm honest with you, is lack of opportunity. Or, I'm too scared of getting caught. It's certainly not that I'm any better than anyone else. I need to hear this beautiful truth that it, it's the kindness and the love of God our Saviour that appeared, and He saved me not because of the righteous things I've done, but because of His mercy. You see, Jeremiah weeps about the judgment. He feels it so strongly, he even questions God. He confesses sin. And the next thing he does is then turn to God and just pray in trust. I love the simplicity of the, the prayer that he play, prays in Jeremiah 14. He says, for the sake of your name, don't despise us. Don't dishonor your glorious throne. Remember your covenant with us and do not break it. I don't know. It's just there's something so simple and beautiful about that prayer. He asked God to forgive them, to remember them as much for God's own glory and honor as for them. And then he, then he says... Do any of the worthless idols of the nations bring rain? Do the skies themselves send down showers? No, it's you, our Lord. Therefore, our hope is in you. For you are the one who does all this. What he's doing there is he's saying, God, you're the only one we can trust. You're the only one who can save people. It is this beautiful truth, isn't it? God is the only one who can save our friends. But in fact, God can turn even the hardest heart back to him, can't he? I mean, after all, he turned my heart back to him. Surely he can turn my friends' hearts back to him. Especially because we know God wants to. See, amid all of the judgment of chapters 13 to 17, 
there are these shafts of beautiful light, beautiful promises. God says, however, the days are coming when it will no longer be said, as surely as the Lord lives who brought the Israelites up out of Egypt. But it will be said, as surely as the Lord lives who brought the Israelites up out of the land of the north and out of all the countries where he banished them, for I will restore them to the land I gave their ancestors. You see, God loves to forgive, and he promises Judah here a salvation that's so great that even the great exodus, that defining moment of Israel's history, even the exodus is going to pale in comparison. People won't even talk about the exodus anymore. They'll talk about this great rescue that God is going to give them from Babylon. You see, we can pray. And we can trust God with our friends because we know he loves to forgive them. God loves your friends who don't know him. God loves them even though they're his enemies. So pray for them. Pray to the God who can be trusted to turn their hearts. Commit to your friends to praying for them and then commit them to God. Because if there is one thing you know for certain, it's that God loves your non-Christian friends even more than you do. So pray for them. So Jeremiah weeps over judgment. He feels it so strongly he even questions God. He confesses his own sin and theirs and then he prays these beautiful prayers of trust in God's mercy. And all of that was in our little summary passage. But, you know, there's one response in Jeremiah chapters 13 to 17 that's not in that passage. It's kind of like a bonus, if you like. And that is Jeremiah speaks. Look what Jeremiah says in chapter 13. He says, hear and pay attention. Do not be arrogant for the Lord has spoken. Give glory to the Lord your God before he brings the darkness, before your feet stumble on the darkening hills. You hope for light, but he will turn it to utter darkness and change it to deep gloom. You see, the heart that weeps for people in judgment, the heart that really does know the danger, the heart that's so moved that it'll even question God and then confess sin and pour out these prayers of trust to God, that heart will also speak, won't it? That heart will burst forth and call people and warn them. So many people I love are in so much peril. Why am I silent? Why am I so, to speak, so slow to speak up? Is it because I don't know what they need to hear? Of course I know, I couldn't know it any better. Is it because I don't have any opportunities? No, every time I ever pray to God to give me opportunities to speak, he does, he floods me with opportunities. Is it because I've got nothing to invite them to? No, the life team's constantly throwing life at us. It's on all the time. I'll be honest with you, the reason I don't speak more is because I don't let myself feel their danger. I don't dwell on it. I don't sit in it. And I don't dwell enough on how magnificent, how fantastic, how incredible salvation really is. 
The fact is we do have a message that dwarfs the Exodus. We don't say as surely as the Lord lives who brought the Israelites up out of Egypt. We say as surely as Jesus lives who rescued us from sin and death and Satan and hell and who rose to give us eternal life. I believe that. I really do. I just don't dwell on the reality of it enough that this really is the only hope I've got for my friend. Maybe that's why the book of Jeremiah is so good for us. It's painful reading Jeremiah, isn't it? All those chapter after chapter after chapter of of judgment and just such short glimmers of hope. Jeremiah is really torrid. Maybe I need something this torrid to shake me out of my sleep. Maybe I need something like this to shake me awake to the truth of judgment and the magnificence of salvation. Maybe I need to see Jeremiah's horror to show me just how magnificent heaven is and how much I long for people to be rescued from hell. Maybe Jeremiah is exactly the book that we need right now. Let's pray, shall we? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for our brother Jeremiah. We thank you that in this passage, he pours out his heart and that it's not a heart of hatred. It's not a heart of callous indifference. We thank you for the tears that he wept and we long to weep tears ourselves. Please bruise our hard, indifferent hearts. Please wake us up to the reality of the perishing people around us. Please let us sit in it, feel the weight of it. Not that we would despair, but that we would call on you, the one we can trust. You are the one who brings people from death to life. You're the one who opens blind eyes. You're the one who gave us a rescue far greater than the Exodus, a rescue from sin and death and Satan and hell. Father, we pray for our friends who aren't Christian. Please have mercy. Please use us to speak to them. Please give us opportunities. And when we speak, we pray that by the Holy Spirit, they would see our sincerity. They would see our fears. And they would hear the magnificent news of the gospel. We pray for our friends that you would bring them to Christ. And we pray for for 30,000 people in Nui and Lake Mac just for a start. But we pray for tens of thousands more. For the glory of your throne, for the glory of Jesus' name. Please have mercy, Father. Amen.